Good morning. Last week I was sitting here watching Terry act out the 23rd Psalm, wondering how I was going to follow that up. And I had uh, several people this week uh, ask if I was going to dress in costume. Unfortunately, the passage that we're looking at only has one character, and that's an embryo. And I didn't know where to begin. Would you uh, turn with me to Psalm 139, please? A few months ago, I was doing some pre-marriage counseling with a young couple that are soon to be married. And uh, one of the questions that I like to ask couples is why they want to marry the person they're marrying. And the uh, bride-to-be answered that never before had she been known so completely and yet accepted so fully. And uh, it struck me that 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 really is what we all want, isn't it? In fact, that's what uh, David writes about here in Psalm 139. We begin in verse 1 reading. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. In fact, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. David uh, gives us in propositional form in verse 1 a truth about God's omniscience. God knows all. And then he develops it in verses 2, 3, and 4. He begins in verse 1 by saying, O Lord, you have searched me. And the verb that David uses, it's not a general or a cursory searching, but rather it's a penetrating, it's an intense uh, examination or investigation. Uh, It's the same word, the same verb that's used in Proverbs oftentimes to refer to to a cross-examination. Perhaps you've been in a court of law before when a a, um, a defendant is is being cross-examined. Uh, David is describing God's penetrating searchlight upon him with that same word that, that describes an intense uh, view, an intense looking and, and uh, investigating. It's a word that was used in Job to describe uh, what a miner would do when he wanted to, to go as far down into the ground to search that vein in order to find the precious metal the furthest searching. And David says that that's what the Lord does in his life with the result, the second half of verse 1, that he's known. He's known by God. He's known completely. God is is not only aware, but he's intimately aware of who David is and, as we'll see, what David is made of. Now, he says... Well, let me, let me back up a second. It's interesting. There's a, a paradox that exists within this psalm, which I think is... Is, is one of the great paradoxes of life. And that's that while at, uh, at one instant we want to be known and we want to be understood and we want to be accepted, we want to be uh, thought highly of, we want people to care about us because it provides for us a sense of security, while on the one hand we, we long for that and we move toward it, at the same time, as soon as someone gets too close, particularly someone whose opinion matters about us, there's another side of us that withdraws and is, is somewhat repelled by the fear of getting too close uh, to someone who intimately knows us. 
That paradox is described for us a little bit later. David says here that uh, that God knows when I sit and when I rise. Uh, that he perceives my thoughts or literally my purposes, my aims or my motives from afar. So the first thing that David says about God's intimate knowledge of us is that God knows what we do. He knows when we sit, when we rise. David uses a figure of speech, a merism there to, uh, to describe the totality by which we're known. God knows what we're like when we're at home. He knows what we're like when we're at work. He knows what we're like when we're with our kids. Uh, he knows what we're like when we're with our spouses. He knows what we're like when we're all by ourselves, when we're traveling in a city uh, where we're not known. He knows exactly what we're like. And he knows the motives by which we uh, act. Uh, he knows when we have good motives, when we desire to serve and to help people. But he also is aware of the, the dark side, we might say, uh, of our hearts. He knows our longings for appreciation, for recognition, which uh, sometimes are motivated by our pride to do things that, uh, that hurt people, things that aren't, aren't loving. He knows our manipulative techniques that we can use uh, with other people uh, or with circumstances to work toward our advantage, to get the things that we want. He knows our selfishness. He knows when we're short with our kids. Uh, he knows when we're impatient with our wives. Uh, he knows when we're critical of those who are in authority over us. Uh, he hears the talk around the water cooler at work and in the lunchroom between employees. He's aware of all of our actions. He says in verse 3, you discern my going out, which is a reference to his public life, and my lying down. Again, David uses the merism to describe the totality uh, of God's awareness. He knows what we're like when we're all by ourselves. He knows what we're like when we're in public. He sees the inconsistencies, the apparent uh, hypocrisy or seeming hypocrisy at times. He knows what we're really like deep down inside. And he uses a word in verse 3, the word that's translated familiar in the NIV, to describe the way that God knows us. It's the strongest possible Hebrew verb for familiarity or for knowing. It's the kind of intimate knowledge that only God can have toward another person or with another person. And David says that God knows us so much that he even knows the words that we'll speak or the thoughts that we'll think before we think them ourselves. He knows the inclination of our hearts. He knows the tendency that we have inside to, uh, to think evil thoughts, to be sinful, to act uh, sinfully towards others, and to hurt. And yet, in spite of what we're like, David says that God still cares for us. God loves us, and he's in control of our lives. His hand is upon us, his personal touch. He says in verse 5, You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. God is intimately involved in our lives. His hand of protection and his hand of guidance. You see, even though God knows what we're really like, he doesn't approach us like a heavenly judge. Rather, he approaches us like a heavenly father. A little earlier in the, in the Psalms, David uh, said in Psalm 103, As a father has compassion on his children, 
So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So he knows us, and he's drawn towards us. He's not put off by our sin, but he's compelled to move in our direction because of that great love. And frankly, David can't handle that. He doesn't know what to do with it. He says in verse 6, Such knowledge about God's love for me in, in, uh, in a company with such complete knowledge is too wonderful, literally incomprehensible. I can't understand it. It doesn't make sense. It's too lofty for me to attain. The word lofty is a, a word that's used uh, in Deuteronomy to describe a, a walled city in which the wall was so high that the city was impregnable. And David says, I can't get a, I can't get a hold of it. Yeah, I, I kind of believe it, but I can't accept it. It doesn't make sense rationally that God would know me as well as he does and yet love me. And you see, the reason is because, like us, David was a sinner. Uh, we read about his sin with Bathsheba, the adultery, the uh, murder of Uriah, her husband. And we can only suppose, and I think rightfully so, that underneath the adulterous and the murderous actions were adulterous and murderous thoughts. You see, David was made up of the same sort of clay that we're made up of. And he looked at his own life and he thought, how in the world can someone who knows me as well as God does still love me and still accept me? The kind of questions that we oftentimes ask of ourselves and ask God. And I believe what follows in verses 7 through 9 are not questions that are rhetorical. They're not, they're not just a literary technique that David uses to make the point that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. But I think what we have are questions and answers from David's own experience in trying to run from God in light of the reality of how God viewed him. You know, you would think that perfect acceptance would cause us to be drawn toward God but actually, the opposite is quite the case, at least initially. None of us like to be known fully. None of us like to be exposed uh, as needy people, as uh, dependent people, as inadequate, weak, and frail. Uh, you know, we like to kind of get gussied up and, and put on this, this uh, facade at times that uh, convinces us and, and others, that we've got it somewhat all together, that we're okay. Yeah, we've got some needs, but uh, hey, things are going all right. And uh, I suppose that in David's case, the same was true. It's interesting, you see it in other uh, biblical characters as well. In, in Peter, for example, in Luke chapter 5, uh, Jesus goes out on a boat with Peter and he's teaching the crowds that are on the shore. And when he's done teaching, he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, let down your nets. And Peter responds, Lord, we fished all night. We haven't caught a thing. But if you want us to do it, okay, we'll do it. So they drop the nets. They catch so many fish that the nets begin to break. I can't even haul it in. And Peter, in response, falls on his knees and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. 
Now, what do you suppose it was that went on in Peter's mind when he saw those fish? Well, for myself, I think he recognized who he was dealing with. God in the flesh. Someone who was powerful enough to put that searchlight on him and to see him for who he really was. He saw the dark side of Peter, and Peter recognized that. And Peter said, I'm I'm afraid. Depart from me, Lord. It's intimidating to be under the bright light. Same thing happened with uh, Adam uh, in the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned, and in uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, we're told that the first thing they recognized is that they were naked. They were exposed to one another. So they took some leaves and they, they made some skivvies and put them on. And uh, the next thing that happens is that God begins to walk through the garden and Adam hides. And he says to Adam, God says to Adam, Where are you, Adam? And uh, Adam responded by saying, Lord, I heard you walking in the garden and I knew I was naked. So I hid. I was afraid. It strikes me in that incident that Adam does not say, I knew I had sinned, I knew I had disobeyed you, and that you had the right to punish me or to deal with me, and that's why I hid. He doesn't say that. He says, I knew I was exposed. And that fear of exposure compelled him to hide from God. I think we do the same thing. I think it's just a little too intimidating when God gets that close. And we're, we oftentimes are in a relationship with, with the Lord where we're kind of moving in and out of fellowship. We move in, and then it, it becomes a little too much for us to handle. So we move back out. We do the same thing with other people, uh, with our spouses and with our kids and with our work associates. We want them to know us, but we're afraid of them knowing us completely because we don't want them to see us the way we really are, as inadequate and frail and weak. So what we do is we try and cover up those weaknesses. We have fig leaves, so to speak, just as Adam and Eve did. We begin to, uh, to look for things that give us a sense of security. Maybe it's in being a good wife or in being a good husband and a provider for our families, or in being a hard worker. Or maybe it's through the collection of, of material possessions that we, can, um, that we can have. Something that gives us a sense of okayness about who we are. And a lot of those things are good. Uh, it's, it's a good quality to be a good husband, and to be a good wife, and to be a good parent. Not suggesting that that's, that that's wrong. What I'm suggesting is that if we are doing those things with the motive or the reason to impress others and impress ourselves and ultimately God that we're okay, then we've missed the mark. Because the place to begin is to be laid bare before the Lord. Take off the fig leaves and say, Lord, I realize you see me just as I am. And I am inadequate. And so I appeal to your grace and to your mercy, to accept me and to love me and to begin to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. That's hard. And David realized it, and as a result, he began to run. Verses 7 through 9, 
Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from, literally, your face? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. David comes to the conclusion that there's no place to hide from God. If he goes up, God's there. If he goes down, God's there. He's not talking about heaven or hell. He's talking about the skies or a deep hole or a cave. He says, if I go east, you're there. If I go west, you're there. That phrase, if I rise on the wings of of the dawn, is kind of a, a peculiar way of saying, if I start on the farthest side of the east, where the sun comes up, and just as if the sun had wings, and it moved all the way to the west, to the farthest side of the sea, the Mediterranean, and settled there, I still couldn't get away from you. No matter where I go, you're there, is the conclusion that David comes to. And he's not talking about a, he's not viewing God with some sort of a pantheistic uh, view that, you know, if he goes to the desert, God's in the sand. If he goes to the mountains, God's in the trees. God is not in uh, inanimate objects. God resides in people. But David's point here is that God is everywhere. You just can't get away from his presence. It's inescapable. And therefore, there's no sense running. Uh, David takes it a, a step farther and he says, uh, I can't even hide in the dark. And, and that, uh, that would probably be my next uh, place to, to try if I were David. You know, turn off the lights. Uh, Surely the darkness will hide me, verse 11, and the light will become night around me. Uh, but even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is the same as light to God. God's not limited by part of his creation. Darkness can't hide us from him. Despite what um, Charlie Rich says in his song, Behind Closed Doors, you remember the words, when I get behind closed doors, when you let your hair down low, there's no one who knows what goes on behind closed doors. When the lights are turned low, i got news for you, Charlie Rich. Uh, David says that uh, there is someone who knows what goes on even when we're hiding. So we can't hide from being exposed to God. It's a reality that we are exposed to Him. The question is, do we acknowledge it? And do we appeal to Him and His grace in response to it? Now, David tried running, but in his flight from God, he came to the conclusion that God loves him. It doesn't make sense rationally, but God loves him. And the proof that he uh, offers us is found in verses 13 through 16 when he begins to reflect on the, uh, uh, the process of his creation and his birth. Just a beautiful uh, description of God's tender care for us. And this is where I'd like to spend the, the focus of our time. He says, for you, and the you is emphatic there, you, God, have created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, the translators, uh, they weren't sure what to do with that phrase, inmost being. The uh, NASB has inward parts. But the word in Hebrew is literally kidneys. And in translating it as such, we would have been 
uh, left to all sorts of uh, of creative imagination. Uh, you know, what is God? What is David saying? Is he saying that God created the the kidneys or the internal organs, or is he referring to the circulatory system or something underneath the flesh? Well, no, he's not referring to something like a a kidney or a heart or a vital organ. He's talking about something that's even deeper than that. You see, the kidneys to the Jews uh, represented the place uh, of emotion, the place of affection. We would say the heart today, our heart breaks over certain things. But we're not talking about a literal pumper inside here. We're talking about uh, that wellspring of emotions inside. And David says that God created that. Why is that significant? Well, where does fear reside? Where does uh, our feelings of intimidation or the, the panicky feeling we, we have when, when someone gets a little bit too close to us? Well, it resides in, we would say, in our heart, the emotional uh, wellspring within us. And David comes to the conclusion that God even created that. <clears throat> and because of that, he understands David's fear. And he understands our fear and our hesitancy. He's not put off by it. He's not uh, repelled when he looks at us and, and sees people that are that seem some, somewhat half-hearted in their commitment to him, people that, that are moving toward him at, at one time and, and uh, moving away from him at another. <clears throat> he recognizes that. In fact, uh, he created the place in which those mixed feelings uh, reside. He says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The phrase there literally means I'm awesomely distinct. I'm awesomely distinct. Your works, what works? Well, the creation of me and you are wonderful. And I know that full well. See, David looked at his life and he came to the conclusion that God was involved from the beginning and that God's creation was distinct. David was not like anyone else. He was uh, completely unique. The difference, perhaps, between David's response and ours is that David came to the conclusion that that was okay. It's okay to be different. It's okay to be me. There was a survey taken that I just read about last uh, this past week survey of 2,000 teenage girls. Uh, they were asked the question, if I could change, or if you could change anything about yourself, what would it be? And then they had several boxes that they could, could check. They could change their height or their weight uh, or their facial features or their personality. The last, last spot on the survey said, I'd like to be someone else. And then it left a blank and they could fill in the name of the person. Would you believe of the 2,000 girls that were surveyed, 59% checked the box that said, I'd like to be someone else? 59%. That seems high to me, though I would suspect that there would be a fair percentage even in, in this fellowship this morning if we were to survey 
who would say, I'd like to be someone else, or I'd like to be a little bit different. I'd like to be a little skinnier, a little heavier. I'd like to be a little taller. You know, I'd, I'd vote for that one. <laughs> I would love to be six feet. Six two would even be better. But I'm stuck at five eight, and uh, you know I've resigned myself to that. But I, I have not always felt good about being short. I've had a Napoleon complex at times. Uh, and some of us would, would like to be a little prettier or a little more handsome. Some of us would just do anything to be able to change the way we are, the way we appear. Yet David didn't, didn't come to that conclusion. Yeah, David was the youngest of seven brothers, and he's described in the Old Testament as scrawny and pretty fair-looking, pretty average. Saul was the tallest and handsomest, and that's why he was chosen to be the first king. And David was to follow him, and he was the shortest of seven brothers, just a little shepherd boy that probably stunk, smelled like sheep, calluses on his hands, He's just kind of a ruddy little guy. Picture yourself in David's shoes having to follow up uh, on Saul's leadership, realizing that someone who had walked before him was so handsome and so appealing from, uh, from the outside Yet David doesn't, doesn't pray here, Lord, why did you make me the way I am? Why didn't you make me taller? Why didn't you make me handsomer? Now he thanks the Lord. He says in verse 14, I praise you because I'm awesomely distinct. I'm extraordinary, and I know that full well. Now the reason that David could say that is because of verse 15. He recognized that his frame, his body, his bones, had been in full view as God created him. They weren't hidden from you, he says. When I was made in the secret place, when I was embroidered together in the depths of the earth, a figurative expression to describe the womb, your eyes saw my embryo. See, God was there and he was involved. He was embroidering David's parts together. The word that's translated uh, woven together is a word that was used in, uh, in the marketplace in uh, ancient Near Eastern literature to describe the work that a, uh, a seamstress would do, an artist with thread who would weave these threads through this fabric and make something of beauty and something of value. And David compares his own uh, likeness, his own body to that. And he says, you're the skillful artist and you wove me together and I'm costly, I'm valuable and I'm, I'm worthwhile because of, of your involvement. Now God doesn't look at us and think, oh boy, I kind of blew it there. Wish I had another chance at that one. Uh, I... I visit the young mothers, uh, new mothers in the hospitals when their babies are born. It's one of the delights that I have. It's a lot of fun. And whenever I get out of the elevator at St. Luke's, I usually turn down the hall and, and I go down to the nursery and I look in the window and try and find the child that's just been born so I can go in and, and uh, comment on, uh, on it and pray with the mother. And, and so, Something interesting happens every once in a while. There are babies in there who have had extremely difficult deliveries. 
and their heads are kind of misshaped. They're kind of look like a cone, and their faces are kind of purple, and they're just you know doing everything they can, working as hard as they can to thrive. And I have to be honest with you. Sometimes I look at that and I think, ooh. And none of the mothers who have babies in our congregation have that, their, their babies never have that problem. But sometimes I look at them and I'm just a little bit repelled because they don't look as, you know, they don't look like the Gerber baby, okay? You know, I'll give them a couple of weeks and they'll be looking a lot better. But you know, when God looks at us, He doesn't look at us like uh, a newborn that's just gone through a difficult time being born. He doesn't look at us and and think, oh my gosh, look at where he's at. Look at what she looks like. And he looks at us and he says, that's my son. That's my daughter. I love them. I've created them just the way they are for a purpose. They're unique. They're distinctive. There were no mistakes made, no flaws, no errors. And he's pleased. He's pleased with what he sees. But we struggle with that, don't we? You know, we look at our lives and we think of what they could be if only God had taken a little more care in weaving us together. You know, there's been a uh, proliferation of, of diet centers here in, in Boise in the Valley. You can't pick up a morning newspaper without looking through it and seeing three or four ads for these diet places with the before and after picture. You know, the guy that's standing like this holding his pants out, and that's after, and then you've got a picture of him down in the corner below. And There's nothing wrong with dieting. I've been on a diet. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being healthy. But... You know, we shouldn't become preoccupied with dieting for the sake of changing who we are or trying to change who we are. And we shouldn't be uh, consumed by the uh, Gentleman's Quarterly or the, the last uh, magazine that has the latest styles in it. Uh, the fashion industry wants us to, to look different each season because it appeals to that desire we have inside to be just a little bit different, to be someone other than who we are. Or the cosmetic industry. There's nothing wrong with uh, putting a little makeup on, but you know God sees beyond it. God sees underneath it. He knows what we're really like. So we shouldn't turn to that as a, a source of, of hiding who we are, the fig leaves, so to speak. You know, the fastest growing group of physicians in Southern California, L.A. County, are plastic surgeons. And their numbers are doubling almost every year. Why is that? People want to be different. And they want a tummy tuck. Or uh, you know, they want the, the chin to be uh, changed. The, what do you call this? The... Uh, What's that called? Help me out. Double chin. Some people wear beards to hide them. <laughs> you know, they want the, the crow's feet to be uh, stretched and the crow's taken out. Uh, but deep down inside, they're the same person. It doesn't change who God created you to be. I, I wonder sometimes what kind of an impact we have on our children. You know, I, I look at it from the children's perspective because I work with children a lot, and I wonder, what could we do as parents 
to affect the way children feel about themselves. We're adults, uh, and most of us, if we're honest, would say that we struggle with self-esteem. Why is that? What, what happened to us as we were growing up? Well, I don't have any answers, but I have some ideas. I think that we get in a comparison trap. I think we're compared to others, and we learn to rank ourselves. Uh, you know, we don't quite make it here. We're not quite as good-looking as someone else, or we're not quite as smart as, as this other person, or we don't have the athletic prowess that another does. So we look for at least one area that we can excel in, and then we kind of concentrate in that. That's what our children face when they go to school. And unfortunately, it's often what they face when they come home, too. We can't compare our children with one another or with other kids because they're always going to be just a little bit different. Some are going to be more skilled socially and have more friends. Some are going to be stronger. Some are going to be smarter. But that's okay. That's the way God created them. We simply have to accept them like that, thank God for them, and then begin to to love them and continually love them and love them and love them. Because out out there in the schools, they're bombarded with comparison. We have some families here at Cole who have children with uh, disabilities of one sort or another, physical limitations, learning disabilities, and I know that's tough. We're going to be starting a ministry this fall for uh, parents with LD children, uh, parents who have kids with hyperactivity and other uh, forms of limitations to support and encourage one another because we need that. It's hard to accept the gifts that God has given us, but they are gifts. Psalmist says that. They're gifts, and you were specifically picked to be their parent, and they your son or daughter. I was reading in uh, Sports Illustrated this, this past week about the uh, uh, International uh, Special Olympics that were just completed in South Bend, Indiana, at Notre Dame. The, uh, the article says this. The writer uh, says, It was impossible not to care by the end of the week, not to care and to cheer and to marvel at the lessons these athletes had for us and for each other. Lessons about trying, about lacking pretension, about real adversity compared to what most of us call adversity. The Special Olympics have come a long way since 1968 when the first international games were held in Chicago's Soldier Field. There was a tremendous sense of isolation back then. There was so much ignorance They didn't think that mentally retarded could play team sports because in team sports, you have to make judgments and be quick and share all the things you don't do in the 100-meter dash. Approximately 1,000 athletes afflicted with mental retardation congregated in Chicago for those inaugural games. They came from 26 states and Canada to participate in three events. Yet, no more than a few hundred spectators attended the opening ceremonies and almost none of them were parents. If there were 20 parents there, that's generous. And then he concludes by saying, catch this, parents had not yet learned back then that they could be proud of their mentally retarded kids. Isn't that sad? 
back then they, they could not be proud of the gift that God had given them. We've got to think seriously about uh, the issue of parenting. Because our kids' futures <clears throat> are at stake and they're being shaped by the way we view them. And we need to think seriously about the way we view ourselves and begin to, to look at ourselves through God's perspective, through the lens of Scripture. He says we're awesomely distinct. But even more than that, even more than what God does in the womb, listen to what else he does. David says in verse 16, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. See, God was planning for our life beyond the womb. The length of our life, the course that our life would take, that was all in God's view. It was all planned by Him. David Roper is often uh, uh, fond of saying that, uh, that we're immortal until God's plan is, is through. And that's the same thing David says here. All of the days were ordained for me. There's no such thing as a premature death, whether it be an infant or a teenager or a young adult. It was planned. God gives us free will and we can operate within it, but it's all within the parameters of His sovereignty. He has it planned because He cares for us and because He loves us. And he isn't surprised with the course that our life takes, even when it seems to be contrary to his will. He isn't surprised when we sin, when we err, when we fall away, so to speak, for a time. He knows that. He's not put off by it. He's not standing at the finish line, kind of cheering us on with open arms, saying, well, when you get here, when you're finally mature, then you're going to be accepted and you're going to be loved and you're going to be cared for. That's unfortunately how we often think of him. Someone that we need to keep moving towards and and trying to please. Now, he's in the race with us. In fact, he's holding us. He's got his arms around us and he's helping us move along toward maturity. He's not satisfied with where we're at right now. He's not entirely pleased with the decisions that we make. But he loves us. He accepts us. He's content with who we are. And he's moving us in the direction of, of himself and righteousness. And again, David uh, is blown away. He, can't, he cannot fathom it. He says in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. David says, uh, Lord, you... You have dreams and hopes for me. The word thoughts there is the same word that was used in uh, verse 2. It means purposes or aims or aspirations. The old song, high hopes, I got high hopes. That's what God has for us. He looks at us and he's got aspirations. And those of us who are parents know what that's, what that's all about. Cherry and I have three kids and every once in a while... I'll be sitting around the dinner table and I'll, I'll kind of look at my kids and our oldest is seven now so I'm, I'm starting to see what she's becoming and, 
and, and where she might be headed and, and what her likes and interests are. And <clears throat> I look at them and I wonder, what, what are they going to be like? What kind of adults are they going to be? And I have high hopes and aspirations for them. I want them to, <clears throat> to love the Lord, to walk with Him and to serve Him. I want them to uh, minister to others, to marry uh, husbands and wives that love the Lord or, and are similarly committed to Him. And I pray for those things. Uh, obviously not nearly as much as God does for us. But when God looks at us, that's what He sees. He sees His sons and daughters sitting around a table. And He has such high hopes for what our lives can be if we just walk in dependence upon Him and with Him. And when we err, just like a parent, he grieves because he loves us. And sometimes he has to spank us just like we do our kids. But it's all toward the the end of making us more like him. David imagines trying to count these aspirations and he says they're innumerable. He says, if I tried to count them, I'd, I'd go to sleep from sheer exhaustion trying to count them and and wake up eight hours later and God would still be thinking about me. Do you all believe that? David did, but and I do, I think. Sometimes I struggle, but do you believe that? You believe God looks at you like that and thinks about you and accepts you despite what he knows exists deep down inside, despite that dark side? That is one of the most freeing and yet frightening experiences to have. It's frightening because he knows us. It's freeing because though we're exposed, he loves us and accepts us. Well, in contrast to uh, the high hopes that God has for David, he's reminded of the reality of his circumstances. And in verses 19 through 22, he looks around and there are others that don't have real high hopes for him. He says, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them or number them among my enemies. At first reading, this is kind of a disturbing prayer. Uh, how does it fit? And how, does it, how do you reconcile it with Jesus' teaching in Luke 6 to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Well, you've got to understand David's circumstances. We don't know the exact historical background from which the psalm was, was written. So we don't know who his enemies were. But we do know that David was pursued. He was pursued by Saul, who was trying to kill him, and by Saul's men, who were trying to thwart David coming to the throne. And he was pursued by others. David was God's chosen man, who would one day be the king of Israel. So to stop David would be to stop God's plan and program for the nations. And David prays, God, I'm not going to take vengeance. I'm not going to try and protect myself. You protect me. 
You be my shield. You be my rock. You be my adversary. These men are your enemies and they're my enemies. And I want you to deal with them. They're men who literally, in verse 21, take a stand against the Lord. The way I've reconciled this is that it is appropriate for us in some instances to pray a prayer like this. And not when we're annoyed by a cantankerous neighbor or someone who won't mow their grass or paint their house. But if we're involved in ministry and in extending God's kingdom and program and there is an evil person who is standing in opposition in opposition to God and trying to thwart God's plans, the way we ought to act is as David did. Not taking action ourselves, but saying, Lord, you deal with it. You deal with him. You be the one to bring about justice. And then leaving leaving it in God's hands. David doesn't say, if you don't handle it like this, then uh, you can forget about me uh, being king or forget about me walking with you. No, he leaves it in God's hands, which is what we should do as well. Now, in the beginning, David withdrew because God's searchlight was upon him. And that was fearful. But he turns full circle at the end of the psalm in light of what he realized about God's aspirations for him, God's uh, creative work in in even bringing him uh, into this world. And he says in verse 23, Search me, O God, so that you may know my heart. Test me, try me, uh, the word was used for testing of metals, you know, purify my life and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the path of everlasting, in the path of obedience, in the path of righteousness. David finally submits himself to God's inspection and to God's direction because it's safe to do so. I think all of us have probably at least at one time been in the arms of someone that we really feel secure with. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it was a parent as, as, as we were growing up. But we know, that, we know that feeling, or at least we long for that feeling of, of, of being secure, of being safe. David comes to the conclusion that he's safe with God. And that's why he says, search me. Go ahead, put the spotlight on. And purify. Change the things that need to be changed. If there's an offensive way in me, deal with that, Lord. I want to be led in obedience and in righteousness. And that's my challenge uh, for you today and for myself. Can you say to God, search me, Lord, turn that spotlight on. I've been fearful. I've been afraid of you looking and I've been afraid of acknowledging that you already know what's really there because perhaps I'm ashamed of it or perhaps it's something that I'm not sure I want to give up yet and I'm afraid if that searchlight goes on, you're not going to let me rest until I do. Are you willing to accept that perfect awareness of who you are and that unconditional love? Are you willing to begin to believe about yourself what God says is true of you here? That you're awesomely distinct. James says, draw near to God 
and He will draw near to you. And Jesus in Matthew 11 said, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. And you know, a lot of us are weary and burdened because it's hard to wear those fig leaves. It's hard to, to play those games. And it's time to, to take them off, to let God expose us. And he promises here that I'll give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And here's the reason. He says, Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's got such a wonderful plan for us. Would you be willing to submit yourself to it today? Let's pray. Lord, it's, it is incredible, unfathomable to, to understand, let alone accept such perfect love. Father, we're, we're riddled with self-doubt and with questionable self-esteems. We struggle, Father, to, to accept ourselves and to believe what you've said about us here. We want to, and yet it's difficult. Father, release the grip of our, our own view on ourselves. Help us to begin to, to grab hold of you. In your love and in your mercy, we, we just appeal to you today. We say thank you for what you've, you've said is true, and we praise you, as David did, that we're awesomely made, that you understand us, and love us at the same time. Amen.